Morning. You can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. We'll be going through 1 through 11. I was encouraged by one of the members of our church to bring some backup just in case you guys, you know, start casting stones or something through the service. So my neighbor and his family, Master Sergeant for the Air National Guard, Master Sergeant Hermanson's here. So before you cast any stones, I'd think twice, just saying. Although, on the other hand, if I do a poor job, I'm sure that I'll hear it over and over again. Um, in all seriousness, though, our, our scripture today is about two different Sabbath inter- encounters with Jesus and the self-proclaimed religious leaders of, of his day. Before we get into the particulars of the passage, let us reflect first on how this passage fits into the larger narrative that Luke is writing about. Luke intends to write an orderly account to Theophilus, and part of this orderly account, at least one aim of it anyway, is to address the question, how is it or why would the Jews persecute their Messiah? Or what events led to the Jews handing over their Lord, their Savior, to be crucified? There are 24 chapters in Luke, and we're not yet a fourth of the way through. However, at the end of today, I think that we'll see clearly um, what it is that began this animosity between the Jews and the religious leaders and Jesus. And we'll be able to answer the question and maybe think clearly through what might have led to his crucifixion. Let's first begin by reading Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some grain, rubbing them in their hands. Some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is unlawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of presence? which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. A man and a man was there with a, whose right hand was withered, and the Pharisees and scribes watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he, he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with a withered hand, Come and stand here. And, and as he rose and stood there, and he rose and stood there, Jesus said to them, the, the Pharisees, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, he said to them, to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored, but they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for a morning where we can gather together around your word, Lord. Thank you for an opportunity to worship you, the one true God. I pray, Lord, that as we take in what you would have for us in your, in your word today, that we would not only look at the Pharisees as the perpetrators, but that we might even consider our own lives 
and that we would in turn, Lord, uh, turn to you and to receive the grace that you have given to us that we might not become hostile towards your word and towards the things that you have to say and hypocritical in our actions toward you. Thank you, Lord, for this, this word that you have for us. And I just pray, Lord, that you give us all ears to see and eyes to hear and behold the beautiful and wonderful things from your word. So the speed at which the Pharisees kind of grow in Luke is rapid. It's remarkable. It truly is. Just in chapter 5, if you'll just listen, I'll read a little bit about the trajectory of the Pharisees. They enter the scene in verse 17 when Jesus heals the paralytic, but this is before he heals the paralytic. They're just in the crowd, right? One of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, and those, who, those that came from every village of Gal- or, sorry, Galilee and Judea and, and Jerusalem. So they enter the scene, and then as we know, Jesus does the miracle. The, the men lower him down. Jesus, seeing their faith, says, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees in verse 21, following this, this introduction, they begin to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So they, they enter the scene as people who are coming to hear about Jesus. It's, you know, Jesus' rapport is going up around um, throughout the nation, and, and they want to see, and they want, they're excited. But as they see what Jesus does, they question their hearts about whether or not um, he's blaspheming and, and equating himself with God for giving sins. And in verse 30, they grumble to his disciples because he and they are eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. And then, as we looked at last week in, in verse 33, they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. So now they're charging Jesus' disciples with being spiritually lazy because they don't fast and pray as, as some of the disciples of the Pharisees and, and John do. So you could see this trajectory. They enter the scene. They're almost in the crowd. You know, they're, they're, they're here to, to see about Jesus and to hear about him. And as Jesus begins to do these miracles, you know, you could start to see this opposition growing. They're like, whoa, whoa, why is he blaspheming? And then they, 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 they come to Jesus' disciples and, and they grumble about why he and, why they and Jesus are, are eating with tax collection sinners. And then they come to Jesus himself and, and are like, hey, look, your disciples, they're not doing, uh, the spiritually wise and good thing to do. They're not fasting and praying. And so, as we'll see as we get into our, our passage today, this is just going to grow and grow and grow until it culminates um, in severe opposition to Jesus as they uh, think what they might do to him. So it's clear to see their hostility is growing and their comments of opposition are more frequent and direct. It is Jesus' response to their last charge that we looked at last week that sets the stage for the Sabbath encounters that we're going to look at this week. Uh, Jesus, in his response, uh, made it clear that something new is here and that it would not mix with the old. And he forces the issue by not observing their Sabbath traditions. I say the Sabbath traditions and not Sabbath law because we'll see today that it's not law given by God that they're charging Jesus and his disciples with but it's actually their own traditions and things that they hold to and they are in turn requiring um, Jesus and his disciples to hold to. 
And it's their rigid and cruel and merciless tradition that they're imposing. Perhaps at this point, it actually might be good to turn to the giving of the Sabbath law. So if you would turn to, uh, let's see, Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, and we'll see what does God actually prescribe when he gives the Sabbath law. Because they're coming to Jesus, and I'll, and I'll read it again, on a Sabbath when he was going through the grain fields, his disciples, they pluck and ate grain, and they come to him and they say, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Is this charge valid? Is Jesus and his disciples really doing what is not lawful? Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days, on it, uh, sorry, six days you shall labor and do your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do work. You or your sons or your daughters or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or your sojourner who is with you in your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This law is not meant to restrain and, and, and keep God's people from being blessed. Here we see He blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. It's for His people's blessing. And it's not in this regard that the Pharisees are, are coming to Jesus. So I have two points, two main points today that, that we'll look at. The first, it's just broken out in the two Sabbath encounters. The first Sabbath encounter, Jesus teaches the teachers. These self-proclaimed teachers, they come to Jesus, and in, in response, Jesus actually teaches them. And our second point is that Jesus does good on the Sabbath. So Luke chapter 6, His disciples are, this is the setting. His disciples are going through the grain field with Him, and they're taking some grains of head, rubbing it in their hands, and eating it. In, in God's providence, this is actually a good thing that God gave to His people. You see, God blessed the land, and, and, and the land was fruitful. And He told His people, don't, don't harvest all the way through your field. Leave the edges unharvested so that my people, whether it's a sojourner or whether it's um, someone who's who not, not well off or a traveler who's hungry, whatever the case may be, that they can go and glean through the edges of the field and have food on their, on their travel. And it's a good thing from God. It's not a bad thing. So the disciples plucked and ate heads of grain on the Sabbath. And the complaint then from the Pharisees is that what they're doing is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now we looked at Exodus 20, verse 8-11 through 11, to, to see what, what exactly did God institute and say when, when the Sabbath law was given. The main thrust of, of, of what God gave was don't do work on the Sabbath. A Sabbath is a day for rest. Both for my people, for the land, for families, it's a good thing, and God gave it to His people as a good thing to be a blessing. Now, lest we think that the Pharisees are a little strict here and kind of, you know, Pharisees, are you really um, being that serious? There is precedent for someone being killed on the Sabbath for collecting sticks. I've, I've included that in Numbers 15. 
And so it's not like a flippant thing to just do whatever you want to do on the Sabbath. There, there are strict commands not to work. But as we'll see with Jesus' example and His response, um, whether or not His disciples are truly doing what is unlawful to do on the Sabbath, whether or not Jesus receives their charge as a worthy charge. The response that Jesus gives then, He starts with the example of David and his men. Let's turn to and see what what actually is happening here as Jesus brings in this example of David and his men, and it's found in 1 Samuel 21, 1-6. So if you guys would turn there with me, we'll look at this together and we'll see what does the Lord, or what actually happens in this encounter and, and, and what can we gather from it that can help us understand why Jesus uses this example instead of another. So in 1 Samuel 21, verses 1-6, to it reads, Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech comes out to David to meet him, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what, you, what do you have on hand? Give us five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always when we go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when we go on an ordinary journey. How much more will their vessels be holy? So the priests gave the holy bread, since there was no other bread but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day that it is taken. So God, as He's creating the tabernacle, gives charges for what is to be you know, created and placed in the tabernacle. And in Exodus 25, we see that God institutes or, or rather charges His people to place bread on a table outside the holiest of holies, but in the holy place uh, before Him. And it's to be the bread of presence. And it's to be for, for Aaron and his sons and, and the priests there, you know, so forth and so on almost as a remembrance that their food and, and, and their nourishment comes from the Lord. So it, it remains at the beginning of the Sabbath and on the table and the bread, the bread of presence, and it remains there until the next Sabbath. And then at that Sabbath, they can take it, the priest can, and they can eat it. So here it is on a Sabbath, David is coming to Ahimelech, the priest, and he's asking for bread. He's fleeing Saul. At this point, he has been anointed king, but Saul is still the reigning king. So in, in what manner or what reason does Ahimelech give David this bread of presence? Some might think, well, it's David after all, right? <laughs> I mean, if David comes to you and he asks for something, you're going to say, yes, David, here it is. Um, I don't think that's what's going on here. I think that we have examples of what happens when kings overstep their boundaries before the Lord. Saul, after all, who's the, the reigning king at this point, 
offered an, uh, a sacrifice that he shouldn't have offered, and it's because of this that he's going to lose the kingdom. And if you think of Uzziah as well, it's just clear that kings cannot overstep their boundaries and just do whatever they want because they are an authority. God has made that clear, and certainly uh, even recently as we think about the example of Saul. So that's not what's, what's going on here. There is precedent in, in God's law, because it's, it's important. It's important to, to recognize that the, the priest isn't just doing whatever he wants to do. It's not like, oh, well, David comes, you just do whatever David wants to do. Forget what God says. There is precedent in the law given, I've included some of these examples, um, or an example rather, for grace and mercy to be, to, to be used under the law in, in certain times. So Aaron, his sons pass away, and, um, and there's grace given and mercy given to him there. So, no, the holy things are not supposed to be, or this holy bread is not supposed to be eaten by any common person, but there is a, an, an example under the law where God recognizes that the ceremonial law can be um, superseded by the greater law of mercy in, in certain times. And this isn't, this isn't something that we create. This is something that, that God has already instituted in His Word, and this is what Ahimelech is, is operating from. He shares the bread with David and his men, not because it's who David is. Partly, yes, it's because who David is, but because of the need. David and his men are on a journey. They're hungry. He has the opportunity under the law to share the bread, and he doesn't do it in, a, in, in just any way either. He also asks David a question have your men kept themselves from women? It's, it's not like the holy things are just given out in, in any manner. He does provide a sort of a test to, for them. And this test isn't just a random test. I mean, you might think you can come up with a few other tests that David and his um, men could have you know, been required to pass before they took this bread. But it's interesting that he uses the test that Moses gave to God's people when God told Moses to consecrate the people before he comes down on the mountain to meet with Moses and eventually give the Ten Commandments. So God tells Moses, go and consecrate the people. Moses comes down and he tells the men, the next three days before the Lord comes on the third day, keep yourself from women. And so it is a part of consecration and to sanctify and to make holy. And so if David and his men are going to eat the holy bread, they are going to meet this, this, this um, threshold, if you will. This, this, they're going to meet this requirement. So Ahimelech gives the bread to David and his men, and that's the example that Jesus uses because the Pharisees are coming to Jesus saying that Sabbath law says that you and your disciples are doing what is unlawful. And Jesus in his response is going to show not only that under the law there are provisions given for, for the priest to show mercy, and even though it's his bread and for his food, he can give it uh, to others uh, under God's law. Even though there is that case, Jesus is saying, what you're bringing here isn't even Sabbath law. So he, he recognizes, or he not recognizes, he, he grants them their charge, if you will. And he says, let's say my disciples are doing what is unlawful to do on the Sabbath. 
But he goes even further in bringing home the real point with the Pharisees, which is Jesus' authority over the Sabbath. Jesus says, Have you not read that David and his men, when he was hungry, they ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And then right after that, on the heels of this statement, Jesus incites the Pharisees because what he's really after is breaking down this false sort of barrier that they're trying to create to, um, to sort of mix in with what Jesus is bringing. Jesus just said in the, in the previous passage that you can't put old wine, or sorry, new wineskins, or new wine in old wineskins, rather, <coughs> lest they break. What he's bringing is new. And he's going to force the issue with the Pharisees. And if you think this statement, <coughs> sorry, Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, is no sort of light statement. Excuse me, sorry. <coughs> it's no light statement. The Sabbath for God's people is one of two of the requirements that really sets them apart from the other people. Uh, when I say the other people, I mean the Gentiles. God's people were given really two things that um, separate them. Circumcision, which the nations weren't doing, and then also the Sabbath. Keeping the Sabbath as holy and circumcision are what separated um, mostly the God's people from, from the Gentiles. So, the Sabbath happens one in seven days. That's a very... <coughs> I should have gotten more sleep when we were at T4G, sorry. <laughs> Together for the gospel, the conference we're at. But the Sabbath happens one in seven days. So, and, and we've learned that if you gather sticks on the Sabbath under certain circumstances, that, that you can be stoned to death. Um, so it's not a light thing, and it's an important thing. God made it important. He set it apart as holy and gave it to His people. And so it's something that, that, uh, that the Pharisees have kind of hijacked and created their own laws for. Clearly, you can see that here as they're charging Jesus with one of their traditions and, and not even calling it a tradition, but stating it as a law. Why are your disciples doing what is unlawful to do on the Sabbath? Jesus' response, I am Lord of the Sabbath. And this response really is what connects these two Count Sabbath encounters together. What Jesus is saying, or doing rather, is forcing this issue between the Pharisees and the scribes and himself. They want to claim that they have some rule over the Sabbath. They want to claim that they have some you know, status above everyone else when it comes to the Sabbath. They're, they're sort of setting them, themselves apart as teachers and as, as law officers, if you will, of the Sabbath. And they're saying, no, Jesus, you're not doing what is lawful to do on the Sabbath because they think that they have a grasp of what the Sabbath is for, but they miss it all together. And Jesus tells them, no, I am Lord of the Sabbath. You, this, you are under the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a law given to you, the Pharisees and the Jews, but I'm not under that law. I created that law. I am above that law. I, I'm the one who can correctly interpret and say what the Sabbath is for and what the Sabbath is not for. So Jesus declares his authority over the Sabbath. 
Jesus also does good on the Sabbath, and that's what we'll look into now. So you have it at, at this point. This is where the first encounter ends. Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. How will the Pharisees respond? Will they turn from their prejudices and, and say, you know what? We need to receive this word from him. We need to recognize who he is. We need to recognize that we've misunderstood the Sabbath. We need to correct our thinking. Or will they press on with their agenda? We'll see. We have another Sabbath encounter. And all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, both record it as the, or record it rather as the next Sabbath. So perhaps it's even the next week. So on, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save a life or to destroy it? And after looking around at him, at them, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So the setting here is the synagogue. We've moved from Jesus and his disciples in the grain field to now Jesus is in the synagogue teaching. Is this foreign to us? No, not at all. We know that Jesus came to preach the gospel and we have it, and I'll just read it for you. In the beginning of Jesus' ministry, in Luke chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus returned in power of the Spirit of, sorry, returned in power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. Verse 15, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And then in the end of chapter 4, we get these two verses. And when, the, when, and when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is not foreign to Jesus. This is what he came for. He came to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And he does it primarily in synagogues. So that's the setting. Jesus is in the synagogue again. Nothing new here. And he's teaching. And there's a man there with a need. A man with a withered hand. And Luke records for us, being the physician that he is, that it's the man's right hand. To illustrate, just to help us get to the point of where we can understand the Pharisees are, what happens when you pull up to an octagonal sign outlined in white with four letters on it? This is not a rhetorical question. You can answer. You stop, right? Okay. Now suppose you're in a car and you're coming up to this stop sign and you see a man jump out of his car and stop in the middle of the road and, and wave everyone through. 
I mean, we've all had drivers that before, right? We know you stop at the stop sign. I mean, and, you know, being the good, good, good drivers and, and, and understanders of, of the, the road laws that we are, we might even feel obligated to get out of the car and to, to ask the man what he's doing. Suppose we do that. <clears throat> Suppose we work up the, the, uh, the gusto to, to go and say, excuse me, sir, you're, you're, you're going to cause chaos here. This is wrong. You need to stop doing what you're doing. And you need to let these cars stop here and stop waving them through. Everyone knows you stop at a stop sign. Now suppose the man to which you've just charged this um, rebuke to and, and told him he needs to stop what he's doing and, and start obeying the, the traffic laws. Suppose he says to you, what you don't know is that an accident just happened down the road and, and I'm actually the chief of police. I'm off duty, but I heard the call. And because of the, the pressing need, I decided to, to step out of my car and to uh, conduct traffic until one of the on-duty officers shows up. What will your response be? Will you say, no, sir, I, I, my, my daughter is taking driver's ed. I've got this here, and, um, and I've been helping her study. And clearly, when you, when, when you see the red sign with the four letters, honestly, you've just been instructed by the chief of police. He knows the law. He knows the law. And he's doing good. He's helping traffic so that chaos doesn't ensue because of the accident that is as further down. He's helping. Will you, in this example... Submit to his authority and to his understanding of, of the laws of the land, knowing that he's perfectly fit to do so, to explain that to you? Or will you grow more and more indignant and maybe get in your car and wait until he's done, until the police officer comes and follow him just to see if he speeds? And then, <laughs> and then you're like, you pull him over, you cut him off, and you stop in front of him, and you say, Citizen's arrest! What will you do? Let's see what the Pharisees do. Jesus has just instructed them and told them, look, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. You got this all wrong. You think that the Sabbath is for doing harm. No, the Sabbath is for doing good. In our text, our setting is the synagogue. Jesus teaching again. No surprise. And then the complaint from the Pharisees is it's not a verbal complaint if you caught this, but it's actually Jesus knowing their hearts. He knows their hearts. And he knows what they're thinking. And he addresses their complaint. Their complaint essentially is, and if you see at this point, the Pharisees, they've moved past kind of confronting Jesus to sort of stop him from doing something that might be unlawful to the Sabbath, to their sitting there. Just think of, of how much hatred you would have to have towards someone in order to sit there to wait for them to do something wrong, only to accuse them. You don't want to help them. You don't want to stop them from doing something that's wrong. You want to sit there and pretend like you're, you're with them, like you almost want to encourage them to do the bad thing, and then, bam, got you. The Pharisees are hypocritical in their motives. They choose to hate rather than love. So they're hypocritical motives of the Pharisees instead of love, which is 
what they ought to be doing. If they truly love the law, if they truly understand what God was saying, they would not look for an opportunity to charge Jesus to let him do the unlawful thing. Um, But back to our example to help us understand what the Pharisees should have done. If you stop or if you, you know, come out and you're having this conversation with the chief of police and he tells you he's the chief of police, that he has authority to do what he's doing and that it's good and that it's right, what would your response be? Would you, would you say, I should have asked a question. I'm sorry. I, I, I did not know what was going on. Um, I thought I knew, but I didn't. That's really what the Pharisees should have done. They should have asked questions. And Jesus would have taught them. He's gentle. He's kind. But they, they choose to, instead of having a conversation or even trying to get to what the truth of, of the Sabbath is, they just stick with their traditions. And it's because of this that they're sitting there and they're probably in the front row and they're just looking at Jesus teach and they're just waiting for Him to do something unlawful in their mind on the Sabbath. So they, they're, they're hypocritical in their motives. And I just want to read, you don't have to turn there, I, I do want you to listen though, just read two passages um, from Isaiah that really, if the Pharisees, well the Pharisees did know their Bibles well, I don't want to say they didn't. The Pharisees knew their Bibles well, but they missed the point. If they had known what the Lord required, they would not have responded in the way that they are. Listen to the Lord's rebuke of His people and how they don't desire the good thing to do, but they desire the evil thing to do and how He feels about that. Isaiah 1, 11-17 What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of your burnt offering of rams, the fat of the well-fed beast. I do not delight in the blood of the bulls or of the lambs or of the goats. When you come before and to appear before me, who has required of you the, this trampling of my courts? He's indignant, God is. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of, I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before me, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And again, in Isaiah 58, verses 6-14, through just pay attention. What does the Lord require? He doesn't require their sacrifices, not the way that they're requiring them, or giving them. He doesn't delight in burnt offerings like that's going to like tickle Him or please Him. That's going to make Him forget about what they're really doing. Listen to what He says. <clears throat> Is not this feast that you chose, that I chose rather, to loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke, 
to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, then shall, you, shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before me. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, I am here. If you take away the yoke, if you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will be, sorry, and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desires in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt and you shall raise up foundations of many generations and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and a holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it not with your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and you will. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What has God given this law for? Not for harm, but for good. God cares for his people. Jesus' response He knows the Pharisees' hearts, He knows what they're thinking. What does He do? Is Jesus going to capitulate at this point and say, you know what, I'm going to recognize these guys as the leaders of, of Judaism at this point, and instead of inciting them or, or, or really causing them to, to um, understand what I'm saying, to confront what I'm saying, instead of doing that, after teaching on the Sabbath, I'll meet with them, we'll come up with a council, we'll try to you know, work things out and, and see if there's a way that we can sort of coexist with one another. That's not what Jesus does. <clears throat> Jesus doesn't say, hey, let's start some ecumenical movement and just forget you know, the truth about what the Sabbath is really about, um, but for the sake of love and, and for unity, let's just drop that and let's start something more peaceful with one another. That's not what he does. He tells them, or says to the man rather, knowing their thoughts, he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. So first is Jesus' knowledge. Jesus knows their hearts and he knows their thoughts. He knows what's going on. And given this knowledge, he acts. So first is Jesus' knowledge. The next thing we see is Jesus' challenge. You see, this challenge isn't just to the Pharisees. This challenge is also to the man with the withered hand. It's a two-part challenge. He calls the man forward 
Now this man with a withered hand may have it in his pocket, you know, so people don't, don't see his shriveled hand. He may be trying to just kind of, you know, play the background where he's not the front runner. Nothing, nothing that he's saying um, is, or nothing that he's doing is going to draw much attention to him or his withered hand. Jesus calls him. He tells him to come forth. You can imagine um, maybe in, in our day if, if you got burned as a child or something like that, there's some deformity or, or whatever the case may be. If Jesus were to call you forward, it, it takes faith. But it's also a challenge to the Pharisees because in their hearts, they're looking to accuse him. And Jesus is challenging them next with his words. He says, after calling the man forward, I ask you, is it lawful to do on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? You see, in this particular instance, the Pharisees, they didn't care about the man with the withered hand. They can care less about him. What they cared about was their law, what I would call their traditions. They cared about their order, their, their prestige. They're upholders of the law. Something's happening on the Sabbath, they're the ones to come to, and they're the ones to give counsel or to give judgment in this case. He gives them an opportunity. He, he questions he says, is it lawful to do good or to do harm? We just read God desires them to do good on the Sabbath, not harm. When they do harm, even though they're observing the Sabbath, they're not observing the Sabbath in the Lord's eyes. God knows. And Jesus, being Lord of the Sabbath, He knows. And He knows what the Sabbath is good for. <clears throat> Here it is. I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? And after looking around, he said to them, he's given them an opportunity. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm? Now the Pharisees at this point, being the Pharisees that they are, they, they, they are probably thinking, if we say that it's lawful to do good, then he's going to do this miracle and he's going to undermine our authority because we've taught openly on these things. But if we say the Sabbath is for harm, then we're just going to be showing our cards and showing our real faces, taking the mask off. Everyone's going to really see who we are. So what do they say? You guessed it. Nothing. Nothing. They're hypocritical and they're cruel, and they say nothing. They don't care about the man. They don't care about God's law in, in, in its reality. They say nothing. So Jesus challenges them, or the man, Jesus challenges them with his words. And after looking at them all, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man in faith stretches out his hand, and it's healed, and it's restored. What response would you, would you think would come after that? We've, we've heard about this in Jesus' ministry up to this point. The, the man who was let down from the ceiling, the paralytic, when he was healed, does, what response did, did, was given? Amazement. This is, I'll, I'll, I'll read it. Your sins are forgiven you. They, uh, some stuff with the Pharisees. Sorry, I've got to move my sticky note. <clears throat> and immediately he rose up and picked up what he'd been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. 
And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. This is awesome. (laughs) They're going home and they're telling their friends and their family, dude, Jesus was there and this guy was let down and we know him. You know him, John so-and-so, just picked up his mat and walked. It was awesome. Here, what do you think the response might be? This is awesome. This man had a withered hand. Jesus stops his teaching. He calls him forward. He says he teaches that the Sabbath is for good. And the man's hand is restored. His right hand, he can begin working now. He didn't collect Social Security back in those days. You know what I'm saying? This, This is real life. He gets to work again and be a man. Nope. That's not the response that they give. What is their reaction? What is their response? But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. How wicked do you have to be to be in the presence of God, to see him exercise his power and authority, and to, instead of being amazed by that, to just decide, okay, well, now it's on. Now it's on. They were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. That was their reaction. What, is, what does this text have for, for us today? We're not, you know, um, living in Jesus' day. Can we be Pharisees? We certainly can. Let's reflect on a few application points. Um, so Jesus in this parable, sorry, not in this parable, in, this, in these encounters, he's revealing who he is. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Will you receive him as Lord? Will you, when the, when the Scriptures rebuke you, when the Scriptures convict you of what is true, how we should treat our parents, how we should love and respect one another, when you see that in the Scripture, how will you respond? Or, we could think of the example of the man with the withered hand. Will you act out in faith when God calls you to to do something? And also, will you not be like the man with the withered hand and instead be the Pharisee? This is a, a challenge to us all. Because we can, in our own lives, Maybe, and this is why gossip is so destructive. Someone tells you something about someone. You start to formulate an opinion about them before you even see them. You meet them. doesn't matter what they do. You already know that they're a scum. Um, and so you just don't even care. And, and, and it's just getting deeper and deeper, perhaps. Or you actually, you know, are friends with someone. They, they, they do something that you don't think is, is, is right. But the, the scriptures don't necessarily speak out against it. But you, th- you know it's not right because you know you have conviction about it. Do you go and confront them? And do you say, you need to stop doing this. You need to repent. And you need to turn from that. Um, or will you recognize that God's word is clear on what is unlawful? And if a brother is sinning, then you, you come alongside him. You restore him with a spirit of gentleness not with anger and malice and and looking out for him to do the wrong thing so that you can accuse him. That's what we have for us today. That's what's before us today, an example of what not to do and what to do, if you will.
and we need to receive Jesus as Lord. He is clearly making that statement to them, and they're not even caring. They're, they can care less about what he's saying or what he's doing. They're going to continue doing what they want to do, and they're going to move forward with their agenda, caring nothing about um, what the truth is. Let us be a people who are sensitive to what God's Word says and to not be people who have prejudices or, or, or hypo- hypocritical actions and motives, but love others and really seek to restore each other with a spirit of gentleness. The worship team is going to sing uh, one more song and then we'll close. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for what you have given us. Uh, both the reminder, Lord, to be honest in our interactions with one another and, our, and, and be genuine in our love for one another. Um, may you continue to remind us, Lord, that that you came to this world not to receive the the condemnate or so the comment comment or the, the approval of man, but to uh, obey your Father and to to do His will and to in the end, save us. And we're thankful for that. And we can see how the trajectory has been set for that. And I just pray that you would keep our hearts from this hostility and and, and animosity that would dwell up in us and that you would give us grace to truly love one another and to um, be there for one another to help one another along. Amen.